Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to local author and cartoonist Sophie Lucido Johnson about her unique approach to writing a memoir. Dueling critic Carrie Reed will join me to talk about Second City's new main stage review, Do the Right Thing, No Worries If Not, plus a look at the Tony Awards. Later in the show, acclaimed chef Beverly Kim joins me to talk about her nonprofit and a special dinner that's coming up. And I'll catch up with Chicago Magazine Dining Editor Amy Cavanaugh to talk about the upcoming Beard Awards ceremony that's taking place in Chicago. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. What would you say to your 15-year-old self if you could write to them? That's the premise behind Chicago-based author Sophie Lucido Johnson's new book, Dear Sophie, Love Sophie. Part memoir, part graphic novel, the book offers a sometimes sharp reminder of the insecurities and awkwardness that went along with being a teenager. But Dear Sophie, Love Sophie also highlights the earnestness and sincerity that often exists within young souls. When she's not working on book projects, Lucido Johnson is a cartoonist for The New Yorker and a teacher at the Chicago High School for the Arts. I recently caught up with her at the Humboldt Park neighborhood-based school to learn more about her approach to creating a graphic memoir. You write in the, the prologue uh, about the origins of what turned into to this book, and you had started writing letters to your younger self. Was there something that, that sparked this idea to, to start writing to your younger self? Yeah, I think that I am a part of a large tradition of people who have journaled as kids. And when we journaled as kids, I don't know, we, maybe we were thinking, someone will read this someday. I don't know who, some, some phantom person would read it someday. And then you realize as you grow older, oh, no one's ever going to read this, ever. This is just something I made as a child that will sit in a dusty basement. So I think one time I went home for Christmas and thought, oh, it would be fun to read these and, and write back to this person. Maybe that would give her some kind of, uh, you know, closure with her with her writing and then later someone found one of my journals at a at my college and I got to read from it and and I thought you know I think there's a lot in these books I and I, I don't think I'm alone I think one of the things that I hoped to do with the project was like inspire other people to check out their journals and write back to themselves or think about what child them might have to say to adult them I was curious how often you were revisiting your journals. Was it something you had really forgotten about, or did you kind of periodically check in with them? I just feel so, like, arrogant, and arrogant's not the right word, like, egocentric, because, yeah, of course, I I would read them back all the time. I still read them back all the time. I love to just, like, sit on my big red chair and just take one off the shelf and read it back and partially like yes it, a lot of it is because our lives are very interesting to us we, we like our own lives a lot um, and then part of it is that things that were a very big deal a very long time ago no longer feel like a big deal which can help right now with things that feel like they're a very big deal because there's some future you that's looking back and saying well that really wasn't anything that was hard but it's it's okay so yeah no I (laughs) I look at them such an embarrassing amount and know know my younger self pretty well (laughs) (laughs) I never journaled or kept a diary but after reading your book I wish I had because I have these like scraps of memory but what I do have is uh, because I came of age right when like email was coming to be a thing so some nights I 
I have gone down rabbit holes where I read my old emails and it's so cringy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, me too. I, I think, in, and then in my journals during that era, a lot of those AIM like conversations I printed out <laughs> or slash, I don't know, yeah, emails. I, I just found one on the ground before I came here today that must have been from 1999 or 2000 and I have no idea what diary it goes in but it was so neatly cut out and folded and placed in the diary and yeah it was cringy it was cringy it was a friend telling me I was pretty I guess I needed that at the Mm -hmm. time (laughs) we're not going to talk about each part of the book but one thing that stuck out to me is I think it's a cartoon with writing where you talk about that first love and so finding my emails to my first like real partner that like it's so earnest yeah. oh that's so sweet I want to ask you all about that now I guess that's like not what we have time for but I want to hear all about like your emails to your first love that sounds that sounds so uh, your cartoon kind of like that you know made me think of that because there is nothing like that first time you really connect with somebody and you feel like this is this is your person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like strange to look back at that person. What, uh, when did the idea of like turning these letters to yourself, when did you start thinking about turning it into a book? I wrote a piece for Long Reads that was about um, like finding other people's diaries at thrift stores. I always buy them. I have like a huge giant collection of other people's diaries and I, I love them just as much as I, I love mine. I, maybe more. No. It's, 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 it's about equal. I love them as much. They feel like such treasures you find, you know, mm-hmm. I really like when people write their goals down or like, you know, or just trying to, I like high school diaries the best. I guess I work at a high school. makes sense. I, I like that age where you're, everything seems so important, mm-hmm. but it's really just about like dating. It's just only about <laughs> like getting kissed or whatever. And, and after I read it, there was like a lot of response to it. I found like, oh, there's all these people who have kept their diaries or who are interested in their diaries or their journals. And this is maybe like lucrative. And it's always sort of been kind of a, it's like belittled or diminished as this lesser art form. Like, in fact, just talking to you right now, I feel a little sheepish, like, oh yeah, I wrote about my diary, but also like, what an amazing thing that humans do that we like make these marks and we want to be remembered and we want to keep track of things and other species don't do that. And it's actually kind of tremendous. And there isn't always a lot of, you know, writing about that. It felt like something to sort of, um, I, I wanted to like explore more and pay homage to. So, and it felt like there was some response in that moment when, when I wrote the long reads piece. And then, when you started the the project of, of turning it into a, a book, did the idea of what this could be like did that evolve over the course of you creating it? Absolutely, yes. I think um, I think I was pretty mean to myself in the beginning. I just beat up young Sophie in mean response letters that I was so you know embarrassed about the things she cared about. And then over time, I started to I don't know it, it intersected with like reading a lot of books about trauma and like you know how your body holds on to old stuff and it all felt like related it like you have you are not a totally different person than you were as a child you're still holding on to stuff that you don't realize you're holding on to and it became sort of an opportunity to explore that it is a pretty earnest book but then i i i think that if other people do that kind of work it 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 creates more peacefulness i I think a lot of us kind of need to to spend some time doing that kind of work so it turned into more of a more of a therapy book less of a humor book over time and i'm i'm a new yorker cartoonist so i think i tend towards like wanting to make jokes about things and there were some things that instead of making jokes about them I uh I, yeah I was earnest and it's easy to make fun of earnestness and so I <laughs> there's like if it, it's a vulnerable it feels tender the whole project feels tender I don't know I, like I feel grateful to have had the opportunity to make it and there's a part of me that's like oh I don't love that this is out there for people to like read and judge what was I thinking but it is so that's that's that going through this did that did you open yourself up to some emotional, did you take like an emotional toll on yourself? <laughs> uh, I took an emotional journey, certainly. I definitely like went down a path um, 
but I think it was pretty healing. I think I, I recommend this task to people. I think it's really helpful to look at some things about yourself that maybe you feel shame around or wow, I didn't, I don't like that I did that or that I was that person. I was like a very sad youth, like always like, oh, what was me? Oh, you're so sad. So very melodramatic. And uh, it's, it, I think there are reasons for that. It's nice to look back at that and sort of say, maybe that was okay. Maybe that was like what I needed to be in that moment instead of try to like shove that version of myself away. I don't know if that feels true for you too. What are you hoping the, the readers that pick it up take away from it? I hope that, what I really hope is that it creates more conversations across, I think in the, I think I call it timescapes, like more conversations across timescapes where we can communicate with our past selves. Maybe not even just our past selves, but like this idea of inherited trauma or like things that have to do with your ancestry, just where you're taking care of a version of yourself that you might not let out very often. Um, I hope that the exercise like prompts people to, to do some version of this for themselves. And so you talk about, uh, you know, this is obviously a really personal project. The book is you and you're putting these really deep things out there. Uh, and you're also a teacher here at uh, Shy Arts. We're sitting in a, in a meeting room here on the, the first floor. Have you heard from students or have they read this? Some of my students have read it. There's a like, <laughs> there's a page where it's just like drawings of genitals and there's a part of me that's like, oh my God, I, could you wait till you graduate? I just like, I don't want us to both know about genitals and like know that we know about them. But some of them have read it. I, I had one student do a similar project already just to her freshman year self because I, I have seniors and I thought that was really cool I thought that her letter to her freshman self was beautiful and sad and and very nice I appreciated hearing it so yeah some some students have interacted with it a little bit if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section my name is Gary Zydek I'm talking with Chicago-based author and cartoonist Sophie Lucido Johnson about her new book Dear Sophie Love Sophie and then just a, a side note, you mentioned you're a cartoonist and your work sometimes appears in this little publication known as the New Yorker. How do you make a, a one-panel comic funny? <laughs> I have a writing partner. We So our process is like sit for an hour each and we both write just a huge list of jokes for the hour. Um, and then I'm saying an hour, but it's usually two because the way you write a joke is you sit still and you wait for a joke to come onto your face um, or like into your brain or to just sort of pass by the window and you're like, oh, there's a joke and you grab it. So you have to be very quiet. It's very similar to bird watching in that way. Like you really have to wait and then the joke will come and then you have to coax it onto the notebook. And then my partner and I uh, sit down together and like polish the jokes out. So we have a list of like 50 jokes and oh, how could we make this one shorter? How could we create more visual interest? And, um, and then I, we pick five of each of ours because you have to submit a batch of 10 every week to the New Yorker and they will maybe buy one of them <laughs> if you are very lucky. And, and so I draw them because she doesn't like to draw, but she lets me take more of the money. So that feels fair to me. <laughs> and what initially brought you to Chicago, you mentioned uh, New Orleans. I got my Master's of Fine Arts uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago where they have an interdisciplinary writing program, which was awesome, like so awesome. I got to take a class from the comic book artist, Chris Ware. He only ever taught one class ever in his life and I just like happened to be there at that moment and it was just amazing. And a lot of good comics artists who work at SAIC. So I was taking a lot of writing classes and they were great, but then taking the visual arts classes on top was just profoundly awesome. There's so few programs like that in the country and Chicago has one, that's rad. There's another writing teacher here who also did that program, so it's a cool program. I've had Chris Ware on the, the show a couple times and he's probably, <gasps> he amazing? he's probably like the nicest human I've ever met and yeah. like, Self-deprecating to a point. I know. I have him tattooed on my arm right oh, there. That him? Yeah, that's him. And then that's Linda Berry because he had her come in, and I just I I agree. He's incredible. And when I showed him this, he said, "I will pay you to get that removed if you want." <laughs> <laughs>
So I know we're, we're talking about your latest book that, that just came out. What's next? Are you able to, to share what your next project is? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I am, I am like, I'm doing a million, I just had a baby. So like m m the main thing that I'm doing is having had a baby. <laughs> and then teaching has been, you know, teaching is a job. And so I am working on another book. I'm, I can't tell you what it's about because I can't talk about a book until it is done. Otherwise I think it will fly away from me and die. So um, I'm working on it, and I'm also just sort of hoping to keep building. I'm, I'm doing a newsletter right now. I'm, in, I'm trying to build that. It's like a substack called You Are Doing a Good Enough Job, and it's about, um, it's for people who beat themselves up. So, you know, there's a theme here. A lot of, a lot of people who hate themselves, like, how can we heal? Yeah. Well, Sophie, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's Chicago-based author, cartoonist, and educator Sophie Lucido-Johnson. Her book, Dear Sophie, Love Sophie, is available everywhere books are sold. And you can find her cartoons in The New Yorker and on her website, sophielucidojohnson.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by Carrie Reed, one half of the Dueling Critics team. Jonathan Abarbanel is out this week. He'll be back next week. It's been a, a while since we highlighted a, a show at Second City in its latest main stage review, Do the Right Thing, No Worries If Not, opened uh, not too long ago. With so much going on in, in the world and closer to home, you would think there's no shortage of material to, to satire. Carrie, you say it's not as political as one might expect? Remembering particularly a show that I saw right after the former guy was elected, and, uh, you know, maybe it was a few months after that administration started, and it was, you know, it was a righteously angry show, but it felt like it was really hitting you know, pretty obvious targets and things that we have maybe had seen, you know, satirized or sent up on late night television, you know, throughout many other, uh, you know, sources. What I love about Do the Right Thing, No Worries If Not, is that, first of all, it's continuing the growing tradition and the laudable tradition that of Second City really focusing more on diverse casting um, and not just in terms of race, but also in terms of including more queer performers. There's a non-binary performer. So I think the political points in this show, which is directed by Jen Ellison, is really coming to an honest grounding in identity and relationships. So Kylie Fitzgerald, who is non-binary and uses they, them pronouns, is part of a, a sketch that's set at Dick's Last Resort, where I have to confess I've not been, but I guess, you know, sort of having people who, as your wait staff, who are deliberately insulting to you is one of the charms of the, of the establishment. <laughs> so everyone's getting these really horrible nicknames. And the waitress it refers to Kylie as she, and then somebody else in the party says, no, they use they, them pronouns. And then the waitress completely falls apart and starts making things really awkward. You know, says, oh, I'm going to give you a name tag that says hero. And, it, you know, it's just really going over the top to show how accepting they are. Whereas Kylie's <laughs> character is just, really, please don't do that. <laughs> you know, this is, treat me like you would everybody else, because this is not making things better. You know, it's funny, but it's rooted in, in a really honest interaction, and I think it really reflects the title. You know, do the right thing, no worries if not. There are people who are trying to do the right thing. We're going to fall over. We're going we're gonna to screw things up, right? <laughs> um, there's another scene where Julia Morales and E.J. Cameron, who are two black employees who have to negotiate you know, situations with their manager. So it's all about code switching. Um, there's a very funny scene that involves a little bit of audience interaction where they have um, Blackbuster. It's a retro video rental store. And the motto is, for every white movie, there's a black movie as good or better. So if you want The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> you'll get The Wiz. You know? <laughs> and, um, apparently, though, Reese Witherspoon, somebody comes in and asks for Legally Blonde, and they said, oh, you can get Legally Blonde. We all love Reese. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little, you know, bend and snap, you know, homage from that from that film. You know, I think it's one of the tightest ensembles I've seen, and I think because of they've because they've sort of freed themselves of feeling obligated to comment directly on the international and national situations, which I think they know, and they know we all know, <laughs> are bad and, and fraught right now. 
they decided instead to create a show that's really, to me, one of the most empathetic, funny, and wise evenings that I've I've spent at Second City in some years. I have to honestly say it doesn't, you know, it's root again. It's rooted in the identities, but it's not self-conscious or self-congratulatory. There are some really sort of whimsical, absurdist moments. Uh, Claire McFadden, who's uh, one of one of the six very talented performers on stage, sings a song about life is good. If you can imagine. Edith Piaf as an earthworm, <laughs> then that's, you know, that's kind of the song. It's, but, it, but it's also, I think, making the point that there are still things to enjoy in life. And, uh, you know, this is coming from an earthworm. So <laughs> there, there's also, I would say, if there is a theme, it's kind of, they seem to return over and over to the idea of duality or twins. At one point, Claire McFadden, again, plays an obstetrician who manages to shrink herself down to a minuscule size in order to check out the uterus of a woman who's pregnant with twins, just to make sure they're vibing. <laughs> That's how she describes it. Uh, we see a couple of schoolboys played by Evan Mills, who's got a wonderful rubbery physicality and a facial expressiveness that just made me think of a great silent film star. He and E.J. Cameron play two boys who are, you know, uh, basically auditioning for a private school. They've been schooled at home during the, the pandemic shutdown. And one of the things they've been doing is making TikToks. So they're showing their routines to this, yeah, to this, uh, you know, admissions counselor, I guess, that would be from the private school. But the TikToks get increasingly inappropriate. <laughs> you know? But it's, um, I think, kind of making the clear the idea that, you know, we all have this duality in us, good, bad, silly, serious. I think what the title is saying, we should do the right thing. But, you know, if we don't always succeed... We're not terrible people forever. We just get up and we try again. And I think that that's actually a message that's a really good one to be putting out there right now. I don't want to make it sound like they're copying out on politics. You know, there are little shots, there's a little blackout where you think you're seeing a bunch of folks, you know, in an old folks home. And then it turns out we're just seeing a scene from the U.S. Senate. <laughs> with people talking about my day, women stayed in the kitchen. And, you know. Um, so, you know, they, little moments like that, but they're not. You know, they're not stating the obvious. They're not being didactic. And I, I wouldn't even say it's all that angry. I think that it's, you know, I think it's helping people who are just feeling exhausted by everything have a moment to laugh and sort of feel like, you know, we don't have to just simply stake out a flag on an issue. We can just listen to each other and meet each other where we're at. And, I, you know, and I think that's really hard to do in comedy, by the way. And I think particularly for something like the Second City Main Stage, where, you know, they have so many different... Um, types of audiences now so many people from out of town there have been stories in the past about you know some of the improv suggestions being you know not just inappropriate but downright offensive not just to the performers on stage but to other people in the audience and here it just felt like they really handled all the audience interactions well and i have to think some of that is because they are working at the top of their intelligence and their empathy that that's translating to how they they bring in you know the audience um so yeah it's just i i just had one of the best times i've had at second city in a while i will honestly say that so wow it's been a while since i've been to the main stage so do they do like a little improv at the end they bring in some little things you know they don't do an actual improv set but they have they do bring in um audience suggestions there's a scene where um I think it was uh, it was it was Kylie Fitzgerald. It was Andy Boldick, and he and uh, he and Kylie play like a kind of a working class Boston Irish couple, and they're at and where are their children in the audience? We're asking questions. So somebody asked, you know, where did they meet? And they, you know, they get into this ridiculous long case <laughs> story of how they first met by the seal house in the zoo, and yeah, so they do bring in um, a lot of suggestions, but not not necessarily entirely improvised sketches per se um but they're definitely showing off their their chops too and so i remember it one of the first reviews you did here on the art section back uh when you first started actually i think it was with kelly Kleiman when jonathan was was off it was a second right. city review and i can't remember the title of it but now we're going back probably to 2018 2019 and I, I think that's the one yeah that i referenced where it just felt like you know they had a send-up of a woman who's a trump voter that just felt like this is just one note and very one-dimensional, you know. Um, and I, I, and again, it didn't feel that creative. You know, it felt like they were kind of punching down. And this doesn't necessarily even feel like they're punching up. It just kind of feels like they're reaching out and kind of giving us all, like, 
you know, look at who's up here. Look at look at the people around you, and just realize, you know, we all have this fair degree of ridiculousness within us, and maybe that's part of what helps us survive when things get really tough. Is that I'm not just saying, you know, laughter is the best medicine, but also, you know, if you can recognize some of the ridiculousness in yourself and and think about what that means, then maybe you can be a little more you know, extending of grace towards other people. Right. Um, and I really feel like that's what Ellison has created here. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it's a big, you know, up with people thing. It's still a Second City show. They're still mostly there about the laughs, but I think they're really, really smart in how they're uh, in how they're getting there. I was going to reference how a lot has changed, obviously, in the world, but just at Second City sure. in between those, that last time uh, you, you were on here talking about uh, Second City and now, I mean... Um, right. So some of that I mean, probably... some, in some ways things have improved, but in some ways not, right? I mean, if we're looking at, you know, the tragedies and we're looking at Ukraine, you know, and, so, and, you know, we still have a pandemic. I mean, the last time I saw it, we didn't have the pandemic. The last time we talked about it. Um, but I think that this is, and, and I did see a show last fall where they were, it was more about how do we come back together. And so that one was, more, and it was good. It was more referencing, um you know, what it's like to be in the room together and what people did during the pandemic. That one was good. It was more topical. It wasn't as angry. Here, I just think it's really interesting that Ellison and her cast have seemed to just say, you know, we're not going to reference anything too directly topical. Now, again, we should note that um, these shows do evolve, you know, and there might be some sketches that come in and out during the during the run of them. I mean, it's generally a pretty set thing, but, you know, they're, they're going to keep, you know, developing things. And, um but it, it's a it's a terrific cast of six. Uh, Jeff Gauthier, who's the um, music director, is also quite wonderful. Um, you know, I thought it was a nice touch for the start of Pride Month that they had kind of a rainbow effect, you know, in the lighting at the start of the show, um, which is again, you know, a, a direct but not hitting you over the head, you know, kind of way of um, uh, you know letting you know that this is a more inclusive environment. And they even started with like a little Zoom kind of you know, musical <laughs> number with a little dance. So it's almost like, you know, this is, that's kind of the feeling, really. And I don't mean that in a juvenile way, but it really does feel like, you know, the best of kind of, uh, of a, you know, those kind of a goofy children's television workshop show with, with a bit, with quite a bit more of an adult edge to it in some scenes. Well, high praise from Carrie. The, the Second City's new review, Do the Right Thing, No Worries If Not, is on the main stage for an open run. We also wanted to remind our theater-loving listeners the 75th Tony Awards will be handed out tonight at a celebrity-studded three-hour ceremony airing live on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus beginning at 7 p.m. local time. Uh, Broadway is is the star here, but there are some uh, local connections to watch out for. Yes, most obviously, and I'm not sure if this will be on the broadcast. So I need to check, or I don't think it'll be on the main broadcast, but maybe on the Paramount Plus. I'm not sure. They've been messing around so much with those in recent years. But Court Theater in Hyde Park has been awarded this year's uh, Regional Tony Award. Very prestigious. I think we are now at six companies in Chicago, and that's the most of any city. Uh, this is voted on by the American Theater Critics Association. We recommend, I should say. Uh, Jonathan and I are both members of that organization. And then the uh, the, the Tony Award Committee uh, it makes – usually they follow our recommendation, I think. Uh, Court has been you know providing great – um, takes on classic theater uh, for I don't I think almost 50 years I'm not sure how old they are now but uh, under Charles Newell in recent years they've really tightened up their connections with the Hyde Park and uh, University of Chicago community um, so it's, it's that's exciting and I, I think a well-deserved honor for them um, there are some uh, shows that might be familiar to our listeners Paradise Square which Jonathan and I discussed in its out-of-town tryout last fall we had some reservations about it but it's up for some awards and as is Six, which started out here at Chicago Shakespeare, then went to New York. It's on Broadway, but it's in a touring production that you can still see here in Chicago. I'm a big fan of that show. That's the musical about the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Um, I I haven't been to Broadway in some time since before the, the pandemic. Um, I know that A Strange Loop is a very popular show. That might be the one to beat. There's a lot of love for Girls in the North Country as well written by Connor McPherson. Um, for revivals, there's Company with Patti LuPone. That's been quite popular with Sondheim fans, I know. 
can it beat out the big brassy music man with Hugh Jackman uh, for Best Revival of Musical? We'll find out. Um, among the Chicago artists, though, I am happy to see that Mikhail Fixel, who's a longtime sound designer and composer, who's worked at theaters of all sizes throughout the city, he is up in the sound design category for the play Dana H., which uh, Lucas Nates play based on the real story of his mother, who was kidnapped and, and, and held hostage and held around the country for several months by a, by a disturbed man. Um, that show was done at the Goodman in, um, I think, spring, uh, fall of 2019. Uh, Fixel was working on the, the Broadway production, and it's nice to see him getting that, uh, you know, those nods. And then Tracy Letts is the Minutes, which originally premiered uh, um, at Steppenwolf several years ago, is now on Broadway under uh, former Steppenwolf artistic director Anadi Shapiro's direction. It's up for best play. And uh, one last thing, Lynn Nottage's Clyde's, which is up for best play, will be showing up at the Goodman in September. So you'll have a chance to see what that's all about. Okay. Well, people can tune into the Tony Awards uh, locally on Channel 2 starting at 7 tonight. I know where Carrie will be. <laughs> Carrie, thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. Acclaimed chef Beverly Kim might add to her laundry list of accolades this week. Parachute, the restaurant she and her husband Johnny Clark co-own, is nominated for a National James Beard Award for Most Outstanding Restaurant. The couple won a regional Beard Award a few years ago, and their Korean restaurant has already earned a coveted Michelin star for several years. Parachute recently reopened after a pandemic pause, and the couple opened a second restaurant named Wherewithal. But Kim and Clark are interested in doing more than crafting culinary delights, though that obviously is a big part of their lives. They also hope to make the world a little better for the next generation, which includes their three sons. With some additional time during the shutdown, Kim launched a nonprofit called The Abundance Setting, an organization that provides resources to working mothers in the culinary industry. Kim is also interested in tackling broader injustices regarding gender and race in the restaurant world. Later this month, she's participating in a special one-night dinner at her restaurant Wherewithal that's part of a nationwide campaign titled The Women of Food that aims to shine a light on systemic inequities in the culinary industry. I recently caught up with Kim over the phone to talk about her efforts to increase awareness and spark actionable change. So we're going to get into the the Women of Food campaign and the dinner you're taking part in later this month. But first, I thought we'd talk about your nonprofit, the the Abundance Setting. How do you like to describe its mission? So our our mission is to support and encourage working mothers and women to advance in the culinary and hospitality industry, to have thriving careers, and to have a quality of life at home. And I was reading a, a little bit about it and how it got started. The idea was something you had, but it was around 2020 when the pandemic started that was maybe the spark? Yes, absolutely. So I had already been thinking about um, forming some kind of group of support for working mothers. I myself am a working mother of, of three children, and I've been working in the culinary industry since I was 16. The Me Too movement sort of sparked a lot of conversation at the table for women in the industry of how we're going to move this industry forward and how we're going to actually not just talk about it, but actually put change, uh, systems of change. And then the pandemic occurred. And when we saw also, in addition to all the stressors of being in the restaurant industry, struggling, but also working mothers all over, uh, falling out of the workforce because of childcare, that was cited as like maybe 80% of mothers and women leaving the industry because of childcare. We realized this really needs to be addressed. What are some of the ways the abundance setting aims to address some of those issues? What types of resources and programming does the organization offer? One of the programs we started during COVID was identifying working mothers in the culinary industry in kitchens in Chicago, which actually is a really small, small minority of people because they have dropped out because of the lack of resources. But the few that we had identified, that we created an application process for them, and we provided meals for their family, 
provided by chefs in the industry, and that was also coordinated with time to have conversations, time to to listen to what their challenges were. We coupled that with like really open conversations, safe conversation space to address their needs, but also their questions, professional questions. So it was like a mentorship program coupled with meals, you know, just exposing their family to this idea of care, that we care about their family, we care about their access to good food, access to education, access to opportunities. And for them, that was a powerful message that empowered them because traditionally working mothers, single moms, single parents, our voice is not really heard, you know, quite often. We're the ones always giving. And uh, to be taken care of so that we can take, take care of ourselves and our family and, and our own career goals was a huge uplift and empowerment for these women. Our goals are national as well. So we partnered with James Beard to have uh, a portal to make it accessible to, you know, like a lot of people feel like they need coaching or they need some kind of um, answers or informational questions. So we made ourselves more available and accessible by partnering with James Beard, who had a mentorship portal. We, we also are centering our work along around what are the next steps? What are What's the future, right? What are the conversations? And... We've identified that we need to have more surveys and we need to have more data and research about, you know, identifying the needs for working parents and working mothers and the, the variety of solutions. But a lot of the solutions and things that have come up at the conversation are are kind of common. Conversations about uh, child care and, and the unaffordability of it. The access to night care or weekend care because we work in the service industry with countercultural hours. We talked about flexible scheduling, wage inequity, um, all these things that relate to how and why a woman in the workplace, especially in the culinary and hospitality industry, is not advancing at the rate that men do, coupled with all the other things that come with being a working parent. So these specific challenges that working mothers are facing are part of a, a broader issue of some of the problems women in general face in the workplace, especially the restaurant industry. And I know there are some troubling statistics out there. For example, women hold a majority of restaurant jobs, but only hold approximately 30% of restaurant management positions. And so every industry has its own unique intricacies and challenges uh, in this respect. In, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest hurdles to improving equality in the, the restaurant world? Oh, that's a really good question. We don't value women. We don't value women of color. It's a systemic problem relating all the way back to when there was a free market, a free slave, of when women were entering this workforce. So our industry was shut out of a lot of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which allowed us to still have a subminimum wage industry where you can actually pay your server like $2.13 federally and make up the rest with tips. So I think there's a there's just all, already an unfair system that was has a history all, going all the way back to you know slavery and emancipation of slavery and women entering the workforce taking advantage of people who weren't valued as much. So we talk about valuing women and women's labor, and so that really put like women took were part of that like entered the workforce and were part of that free system or like basically. Uh, supporting, you know, saying the guests are responsible for our wages, which is a huge different dynamic than any other industry. We don't value the people who are caregivers. We don't value domestic workers. We don't value women's work. And I think that just had, it's still the fight for the fair wage is a huge one we've been fighting since the March on Washington, right? So that was their fight. And it's still 2022. That's still our fight. So that's one thing. You know, and in talking about those soft structure, in infrastructure in our in our culture, not just highways, not just like building structures, but structural like infrastructure that will support a workforce that families can come back to work. And unfortunately, there's a lot of mentality that that work goes on the woman and should go on the woman. And so, therefore, you don't, you know, there's no incentive to come back to work if you can't find it. If you're paying out what you're making and the woman is culturally and also making less money, we are the ones who are dropping out. The whole conversation that, that I wanted to lead with 
uh, Desi was that um, I wanted to change the idea that a woman is a liability. Being a working mother is a liability to a restaurant or a company and change that idea to saying that women and mothers are an asset to your company. Why are we an asset? Why are we? Because we are, we need our voice to be better leaders, to, to, to hold this industry in a better direction. It starts in the community. It starts in the community because obviously waiting on government policy is going to take a long time, but it starts with the cultural and community aspect of having these conversations and valuing and, and putting actionable change in our own restaurants, whether it's adding a parental leave program or adding making sure you have health care benefits or um, making sure you have a culture of empathy and care, for, which, which was lacking in our industry and stand up against misogyny you know, and in our industry um, with a clear zero tolerance harassment voice, you know, things like this, these are cultural things, which will impact perhaps even policy. Whenever you ask a chef where their inspiration comes, a lot of the times it comes from the matriarchs in their family. Right. So food is the food and the love and the nurture and the care of food has been passed down by matriarchs. And so we need to value that and give it the respect it deserves and value that with compensation and make it visible in our system. And some of those things you describe, right, are, it's systemic and sometimes it can feel overwhelming when you talk about actionable change. Do you feel like awareness is improving among people? I, I do think it's uh, improving. How long is it really going to take to see some actionable change? Well, I think it starts with knowing that you always have to start with seeds, sowing the seeds of awareness. And that, that's already a, a huge step forward, sowing the seeds of awareness, talking about it constantly, showing the data and, and the research behind it. So it's scientific, it's data, it's proven, there's numbers behind it. Then have the qualitative conversations, sharing the stories behind the women of food. It's going to take time. If you think just even 100 years ago, women didn't have an opportunity to vote in this country, that those people fought really hard to go above and beyond to, to do, so that I can have the ability to vote. So I, I really see it as sowing the seeds of justice. It's going to take time, but it's, it's actual work that you don't necessarily won't see fruits of like immediately this year, but it does help create the momentum if you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with award-winning chef and restaurant owner Beverly Kim. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the Women of Food campaign and the special dinner you'll be making on June 28th at Wherewithal. What do you have planned for the event? Sure. So actually, I was thinking about the dinner because it, it's going to be a unique dinner that I'm cooking with my chef de cuisine, who is a woman and the women behind me, my general manager, who is helping me structure it behind it. But I was thinking about the storyline. So the storyline I wanted to bring to the table was of the power of the matriarch. And whether you have children or not as a woman, I think we can all tap into that power of the matriarch. The menu is going to be designed with, you know, the idea of motherhood or who's been my mother figure. So my mother figure, she was actually a stay-at-home mom. You know, she was an immigrant from Korea. Her power was that she gave me food of my culture. That is my identity. Like I bring with me no matter where I go. And her strength as my mother and nurturer and caregiver is what I pour into, you know, as a manager, as an owner, as a community leader, I use that power. It's an asset to the community. The, the power of caring for people. That will be communicated through the food. We have actually one of the dishes I'm excited about because I, I don't think I've ever tried to do it on the scale. is It's called Wang Mandu, but uh, that's the King's Mandu, but I'm going to call it the Queen's Mandu. Okay. And it's basically a huge um, dumpling that's steamed, and uh, we're going to fill it with pork and kimchi because kimchi was also something my mom fed me growing up. So it's going to have like a bend of the, you know, the food my mom kind of, the style of food my mom gave me mixed with wherewithal is um, a prefix dinner. So it's, you know, every week it changes based on seasonal ingredients. So we'll utilize some farmers and seasonal local produce. So that's also part of taking care of our earth, taking care of the people in our community. And it's all kind of related to 
you know, the idea of the power of what, what women bring to the food community. We are the matriarchs. We are, our nurturing care is, is an asset. We need this idea of caring for others that is something that is, I feel like, our power. And it's never seen as a power. It wasn't valued before, but we're going to turn that story on its head and we're going to create a new narrative. And this starts one person at a time and telling that story one person at a time. Well, it sounds like you put a lot of thought into this event and it's going to be a spectacular dinner on June 28th. People can go to resi.com for more information uh, on how to go to that. And then uh, I have to say, while I have you here, that uh, congrats and good luck. Your other restaurant, Parachute, is nominated for a James Beard Award in the National Outstanding Restaurant category. That has to be exciting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any words to say, you know, for it just really it's empowering because all the challenges and all the talking I got, you know, like I wasn't going to make it. And it feels kind of validating to that was kind of my feel to keep going, actually, was people saying I couldn't do it. And it is very, I, I think it's important for me. It's for me. It's for just to be nominated. It's just really an important story to share because, you know, somehow, some way, even though all the odds could be against you, you could turn that into something an energy and a force to change the narrative. Always change the narrative. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully it, we can take something home. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah. if not, I'm just so, you know, floored to be in that group because that is a national group. And it's, it's a, you know, I'm, I've been taught, you know, without, again, with my Korean-American upbringing to kind of minimize those moments. But I really was, like, focusing on trying to, to really process this moment because it is a very important thing to not minimize what that what that means to me and my community of course yeah it's a huge honor and from everything i've gathered and read you and your husband are are really deserving so definitely rooting for you from the sidelines well thank you so much thank you so much and, and I, again i couldn't be here without our supporters and and you know, I think we've always been very transparent about our story and our struggles. And I think people really appreciate that because I think it relates to so many people. And, you know, I think we're in this together in some ways. A lot of people can relate. Yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> now I got to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Beverly, I appreciate you taking time to, to talk with me. Thank you, Gary. That's Beverly Kim, the award-winning chef and co-owner of Parachute and Wherewithal. She'll be cooking a special The Woman of Food dinner on Tuesday, June 28th. Go to resi.com for more info. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. It's been a rough couple of years for the restaurant industry, but tomorrow in Chicago, some of the country's most talented and innovative culinary minds will gather to celebrate excellence. After a two-year pandemic pause, the James Beard Foundation Restaurant and Chef Awards ceremony is returning. The Oscars of the culinary industry will take place Monday, June 13th at the Lyric Opera House. Best New Restaurant, Outstanding Restaurant, and Rising Star Chef are just some of the awards that will be handed out. Chicago has a presence in several major categories, though the real winner may be of the city itself, with some of the country's most talented chefs, bartenders, and restaurateurs descending upon Chicago for several days. I recently caught up with Chicago Magazine dining editor Amy Cavanaugh to talk about this year's Beard Awards. So after a, a two-year break, the return of the Beard Awards ceremony has to be uh, seen as a, a positive sign for the, the restaurant industry, right? I, I know it doesn't directly affect restaurants, but symbolically, that has to be a good sign. Absolutely. Um, and it is good for Chicago uh, to have, you know, such noted chefs who are nominees come in town. It's always exciting to kind of follow along on social media and see where everyone's going when they visit. And so I was just curious, given how restaurants have had to operate for the past two years, do we know if the uh, selection slash voting process was altered to, to fit the circumstances? 
Uh, the voting process um, was very focused on, um, you know, making sure that the nominees were good stewards of the community. All of the nominees had to write essays explaining how they, you know, encapsulate the values of the James Beard Foundation. And so the nominees really reflect, you know, restaurants and chefs that are doing good for the community. There's an an increased look at um, the diversity of the candidates. And so you're seeing a lot of first-time nominees this time who, you know, it, it feels like a very different beard list, you know, from two years ago. And, you know, honestly, they didn't even come out with a list in 2020. So it's been since 2019. So it's really been three full years. And I think the list reflects, you know, a lot of the changes that the restaurant industry has gone through uh, throughout the pandemic. So let's look at a couple categories where Chicago is nominated. Uh, Jason Vincent, the chef behind Giant, is nominated in the uh, National Outstanding Chef category. Were you expecting this, or was this a surprise? You know, it was a surprise because he had initially been left off the uh, shortlist for the award. And so, um, you know, the initial list came out. I was like, oh, no one from Chicago. And then it was quickly amended, like, the next day that, oh, Jason's been nominated, uh, which is exciting. Uh, These outstanding awards, um, such as Chef and Restaurant, are national, as you mentioned. So these are super exciting. You know, it's really great to see Chicago chefs nominated in these categories. And for our listeners, uh, maybe not familiar, Giant, uh, how would you describe the the type of restaurant it is? Oh, I'm such a huge fan of Giant. Um, You know, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's a very tiny little spot. There's a really incredible pasta program. But for me, it's just like every time I go there, I have, you know, dishes that I'm like, how do they get such amazing flavors from all of these you know, it's it reads kind of simple on the menu, but it's just like everything they do there is just absolutely delicious. If we take a, a time machine back to March of 2020, before everything shut down, I had made reservations uh, at Giant for like three weeks out, um, and then of course everything changed. So still haven't made it there, but looking forward to to trying it for the first time. Another big award is uh, Outstanding Restaurant and uh, Chicago-based. Parachute is nominated. And this one is great because Parachute actually just reopened a few weeks ago. Wherewithal, their sister spot um, had been open. But Beverly Kim is, you know, and her husband, Donnie Clark, the two of them, you know, not only do they just make absolutely incredible, delicious food, you know, they're very involved in the Abundance Setting, which is an organization that helps support mothers in the restaurant industry. And they have three small kids, and they kept both of their businesses alive. But really, I felt like so much of what I saw both of them doing the past few years is working on the abundance setting. Johnny was very involved in supporting Ukrainian chefs and raising funds for that. And so, you know, you, you can tell that, like, you know, they're just good people, but also just amazing chefs. And so I will say I've also been monitoring Open Table to see you know, when I can get a reservation to go myself, and I have not been able to get one yet. <laughs> and then we have the uh, the regional best chef category, the, the Great Lake region, which includes Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. And uh, this year, four out of the five nominees are, are from Chicago. Any thoughts on who stands out uh, among this group? I mean, this is a heck of a lineup for Chicago chefs. Um, You know, there's one chef from Detroit and then four nominees from Chicago. Um, John Shields and Karen Uri Shields um, from Smith are both nominated. I recently dined at Smith, and that remains one of my favorite fine dining spots. Um, Same with Oriole. Um, Noah Sandoval is nominated for that. Oriole is a really fun one because I've been a couple times since they reopened both to the main dining room to have the tasting menu, but also to go to their bar because they revamped their space um, during the pandemic. They added, um, knocked on a wall, added a bar. And so now if you go in for the fine dining meal, you start at the bar with a cocktail and some small bites. But at the end of the night, they also open up at like 10 p.m. for cocktails and a ham sandwich. 
and this is the best ham sandwich <laughs> I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I think about it all the time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it is amazing. Um, so they do three seatings each night that they're open. They're, they're kind of like wrapped up by 11, So um, and these really book up in advance. But you can book a bar seat and go in, and Julia Momo safe Kumiko does the cocktails. You can have a couple of cocktails and a ham sandwich, or you can go in and have the, you know, the full tasting menu. So Oriole is really, I feel like doing very exciting work right now. Eric Williams from Virtue is nominated and I absolutely love his food. Um, that is one of my favorite restaurants in the city. Every meal I have there just knocks it out of the park. And then Jason Hamill from Lula Cafe is nominated. And, you know, as you know, Lula has just been one of the, the standard bearers for great restaurants in the city. And so choosing amongst these nominees is not an easy task. Um, so I think any of them could definitely take this award. And I hadn't been familiar with the Detroit chef prior to seeing this list, but, you know, seeing that he's nominated with these other luminaries um, makes me want to check out his restaurant the next time I'm there. Right. And just a, a side note, I think we've talked about this in the past, but it's probably time that Chicago just had its own regional category. Uh, yes. Absolutely. It's, I feel a little bad for the great chefs in Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, of which there are so many. I think they deserve their own cat to be separated from Chicago because, you know, Chicago just totally dominates us. And then a couple of the other uh, national categories, I see some Chicago nominees, an outstanding baker, Maya Camille Broussard for Justice of the, the Pies. I, I'm not familiar with this. So... There isn't one yet, which is why um, her name may come as a bit of a surprise, because she has been doing some pop-ups. She's also been on a Netflix show as a judge on Bake Squad and has been, um, you know, doing some pop-ups for Justice of the Pies, but she will be opening her own spot this fall and will also have a cookbook coming out, which is very exciting. So... Even if she doesn't take this category, she is definitely a name to watch because we're going to be seeing a lot of her um, coming up this fall. Nominated for a Beard Award before you even open your physical location. That's pretty good. Um, and then in the Absolutely, uh, yeah. <laughs> outstanding bar program, uh, Nobody's Darling is nominated. What's, yeah, uh, this one is, is, is a surprise. This is um, a neighborhood bar in Andersonville. It is black and queer-owned, and it's really seemed to fill a niche in the neighborhood for a type of bar that people were really looking for. And so it's also very new. Like, I think they're just hitting their one-year mark. And so that one, I feel like, is the biggest surprise for a Chicago nominee. Hmm, interesting. Do you go to the live event? I do, yes. I'm looking forward to that on Monday. And it's also going to be a full weekend of events leading up to that. Actually, starting tonight, I have a dinner. It's definitely a big week for you, I'm sure. What's the event like? So it's at the Lyric Opera House. So then you just you get assigned seats, and, and then the, the winners like walk up and make an acceptance speech. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Um, I, have, <laughs> I have one. <laughs> I have a, a seat in the in the uh, the main room there, and then afterwards there's a tasting event. Um, immediately following so should be fun you know I, I think that you know the pandemic has definitely kind of made the beard festivities feel a little bit more restrained this year um i feel like in the past my itineraries would be like i have six things on sunday and six things on monday and now it's just a couple each day which you know is i think a response to you know maybe fewer people coming to town fewer people wanting to do big events right now so i think it's still going to be a really great weekend especially for chicago sure sure and then before I let you go, the uh, the current issue of Chicago Magazine's on newsstands, and I was flipping through it, uh, and you have a, a couple things in there, but I, I was reading something about there's a, a new Italian restaurant in, in Little Italy. There is. Um, this is an exciting one. It's from um, a few people who whose other establishments I love. Um, Dave Bonamy of Coal Fire, which is one of my favorite pizza spots. Um, teamed up with uh, father and son Agostino and Tony Fias of uh, restaurant Agostino and Tempesta Market, which I absolutely adore. Um, and so they opened Peanut Park Trattoria, which is um, Italian-American. There's pastas, there's chicken parm, um, there's a wonderful tiramisu. Um, it's 
it's a really good neighborhood joint and really pulling in people both from the neighborhood and further afield. You know, I saw multiple people I knew when I was there. So it's always the sign of a good neighborhood restaurant. Excellent. Amy, thanks so much for making time to, to talk with us. Thank you. The James Beard Awards ceremony will take place Monday, June 13th at the Lyric Opera House. Tickets are sold out, but you can watch the ceremony live on the Beard Foundation's Twitter feed, at Beard Foundation. And you can check out Amy's latest pieces at chicagomag.com. Try an angelada with the fish and an I love how you dance the rumba. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Hey, child, you don't have to go to the school. Choose to make it with a beat the bambino. It's like a vino. Kid, you good looking, but you don't know what you're cooking, do you? Hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano, hey, hey, mambo, mambo Italiano, ho, 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 you mixed up a Sisliano, hello, kiss a DJ, you get happy in the pizza when you mambo Italiano.